This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome in to this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball. It is the middle of June. Ordinarily, we'd be coming up on, uh, you know, all-star games and first half titles and all that kind of stuff. And we are. And that's, uh, I don't know why I said ordinarily, because that's the that's the case in the world. Not, not all-star games necessarily, but we're winding down the first half of the minor league baseball season. And uh, I think I'm just refusing to admit in my head that it is nearly the official end of spring and start of summer. Uh, because this, I always want this time of year to go 10 times slower than every other time of year. Um, but this is the official podcast of minor league baseball. My name is Tyler Mon, Sam Dykstra and Benjamin Hill in New York city. Uh, fellas, we got, uh, so much to get to today. How are you? Good, good. Uh, yeah, it, it's funny. You point out about there being first half titles now, like the, the official first half is back. I mean, that's a thing that's returned to minor league baseball this yeah. year. The idea title determining playoff spaces um so like even today oklahoma city tweeted that they can clinch the pacific coast league first half title with a win today on wednesday so i'm guessing if they're that close uh by the time you guys hear this on friday they probably will have clinched um oklahoma city has been certainly loaded uh this year but it's funny that this is happening now and like you said tyler we haven't even officially gotten to summer yet (laughs) We're talking about first half of the season being yeah, done, we and we're not clinching, even officially yet. Clinching yeah. titles, and we're still uh, officially in the season of spring. Um, and we are very excited for this week's episode of the show. Before the show, we are going to dive in uh, in one of our themed episodes. We're going to talk with some minor league broadcasters. We're going to hear from a wide slew of minor league broadcasters on some of their favorite moments, favorite calls, all that type of stuff. And um, one of the guys who has met probably more of them than any of us is Benjamin Hill, who is uh, yet again gearing up for a uh, a road trip that we're going to talk about. Um, but Ben, what's uh, what's been going on with you? I feel like we we should check in on Ben the person, not just Ben's biz. Yeah. Hey, I appreciate that. Um, speaking of broadcasters, I have a hard time believing I've met as many broadcasters as Tyler Mon, a uh, professional. I feel, like you, I feel like you've probably met so many more than me. Plus, everybody seeks you out. Which is cool. I remember when you came to Myrtle Beach uh, when I worked there in 2011. I was like, Ben Hill is going to be here. Do I ask for his autograph? This is awesome. <laughs> With me, it's like nobody, nobody cares. But that's but you uh, you draw the crowd. Yeah, yeah, I draw a crowd. I mean, upwards of uh, two and three people at a time <laughs> are interested in the fact that a uh, traveling minor league baseball writer Ben Hill is at the ballpark. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, I'm going on this trip. Uh, we're talking here on Wednesday, recording a little early. Uh, this is my last day before leaving. And, um, you know, as, a, as I was telling you guys off air, you know, uh, I always get really stressed and anxious before a trip and uh, a little bit sleep deprived right now. So, you know, I don't feel great today. I just feel kind of like, oh, just all edgy and all the little to do list before you leave. And, um, you know, I 
did this job and most of my ballpark visits through the years, I was usually single and, you know, it's a different dynamic now and having a family and a kid and uh, yeah, leaving that and, you know, all, all the, you know, responsibilities that I have to do day to day that I didn't have before and then trying to get trips done on top of it. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying these are kind of like some of the lowest times for me right before a trip because it's all that edginess of waiting to see what happens and making sure I didn't forget anything and feeling like no one's responding to my reach outs about X, Y, and Z. No one even likes me anymore. You know, you know how you get in your head, but then usually I go on the road, usually not always. And I'm like, ah, this is awesome. What were you worried about? You, uh, you've done this a lot. As Tyler said, you know, people love you. You're a celebrity, you're signing autographs. Um, you know, sometimes that's the case, sometimes not, but usually it's just like anything in life. Um, it's a, it's a lot easier to do things than it is to think about doing them. So I'm always, always glad to get past the thinking about doing it stage pretty much no matter what it is. Here, Ben, I'll give you a little bit of an ego boost. What's the uh, strangest audio, autograph request you've ever had? Huh, strangest? Um, well, well, one, one, it wasn't so much me per se, but when I think of a strange autograph, you know, my earlier days of uh, road trips, you know, I was I was really participatory. I would just tell the teams like, hey, any aspect of your operation, I'll do it. So I ended up in a lot of between inning games and, you know, uh, silly stunts and just running all over the ballpark in those early days. And there was one time, this is an Inland Empire in 2011, the Inland Empire 66ers. Um, they had a tooth race sponsored by a local dentist. You know, there was just like three teeth. Uh, racing. So I, I dressed up as one of the uh, teeth. I was tooth. And you know, kids at games, they just want autographs from just, just about anybody who seems important or weird or, or um, you know, just stands out a little bit. But I was standing there on the berm waiting for this between inning race to begin dressed as a tooth. And kids kept coming up to me, not because I was Ben Hill, but because I was dressed as a tooth and asking for autographs. And I have these this costume on. It's all awkward. And I just in like block letters wrote tooth. <laughs> and it was just like, all right, I'm, I'm a tooth and I'm signing autographs uh, uh, from tooth. <laughs> it was that that's the uh, I've, uh, I've thought of in terms of people who want my autograph. I can't think of anything, anything too like really interesting or strange. But, you know, I did do one of the cool things in my career for sure was doing those tops cards uh, a couple of years uh, was that 16 17 18 um so it's not uncommon you know for collectors who are often trying to get you know player autographs to see me and they have Ben's biz cards and uh, and signing those and that is always a little surreal like you know pausing to sign out of this uh you know collector's book that also features all these players and I'm like yeah yeah I'll sign one of me where I'm you know shirtless on Frisco's lazy river and hey let's go for it I, uh, we have so much to get to on this week's episode of the show before the show. Uh, we have no more time to waste, but that's one of my favorite things is wasting time with you dudes. I have to ask you about this tooth race. Were they different types of teeth? Was there like a molar and a canine and an incisor? Or was it like all just three generic teeth? That's what I was trying to think when I was telling the anecdote. I wanted to say that I was like molar or I was a by husband, but I, I really cannot recall if um if they were differentiated. It, it's written, it, it's it's documented in some blog post uh, deep in the Ben's Biz blog archives. So uh, I will look into that and see if I can uh, <laughs> come up with anything else. That is fantastic. 
Um, all right, Ben, well, let's dive into uh, some of the good stuff that is up on the site right now, some of the stuff that is coming, your next trip, all of that, uh, and we're going to kick it off. Your your Northwest League trip a couple of weeks ago, uh, you met an eccentric fellow in Hillsboro, Oregon, uh, which – if there is anybody who is acquainted with the eccentric characters of minor league baseball more than Ben Hill, I want to know who it is, but uh, I need to, we need to hear this Hillsboro hippity hop story. Yeah. Um, you know, this is how I roll just about to embark on one trip, but I'm, I, I still writing about the, the previous one. Cause there's all sorts of little odds and ends to cover. Uh, when I was in Hillsboro, I met a man named Christian Trout who um, does not go by Christian Trout at the ballpark. He is the hippity hops guy. And he is, uh, you know, the, the biggest fan at the ballpark in terms of just sheer presence. And those are the kind of people I like to write about. But the hippity hops guy, you know, there's several unique things about him. But one of his main things, he sits in Section 5 at Ron Tonkin Field in Hillsborough, um, you know, right near the home dugout, uh, right behind the home dugout, actually. And so he's one of those fans who kind of leads an informal group. Uh, in all sorts of, uh, you know, in-game rituals and cheers, and he has dugout shrines and voodoo dolls of the opposing team. But one of his main things is a rubber chicken. And um, he has a rubber chicken with a bow tie with him at every game when he's always squeezing, you know, and, you know, and you can, it's not an instrument, but you can squeeze a rubber chicken in different ways. Sometimes real quick and fast, you know, because you're excited, sometimes more slow and let the air out. It's mournful. Um, You know, there's more emotion in a rubber chicken than you might think. So this guy always has a rubber chicken. Can that be the title of this episode, please? Even though this is our broadcaster episode, can that be the title of this episode? There's more emotion in a rubber chicken than you'd think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Um, There really is. I learned a lot about rubber chickens. And he got this rubber chicken just as a a gift um, from his sister uh, for Christmas in 2021. And he started bringing it to the games. But then he was like, you know, it's kind of lonely when you're the only one with the rubber chicken. So he bought a bunch of miniature rubber chickens, which I assume are cheaper and easier to carry into the ballpark. So he just distributes these miniature rubber chickens every single game. And, um, you know, when I was talking to him at the ball game I attended last month, you know, just throughout our conversation, it was kids, you know, they, they just knew, you know, how kids always want something for free. You know, they had a lead that that guy down there is giving away rubber chickens. So kids kept coming up and uh, asking for rubber chickens. Some of the other fans uh, in the section already had their rubber chickens and just in the ballpark, not in an overwhelming way, but in a very persistent way all throughout the game, you would just hear from all throughout the ballpark, these rubber chicken, you know, scronks and squeals and bleeps uh, just kind of as part of the ballpark ambience, you know, the, the crack of the bat, the thump of the ball hitting the glove, the uh, PA announcer announcing batters. Uh, the low buzz of the crowd and just rubber chickens. It's all part of that ballpark uh, oral tableau. I never know how to say oral, A-U-R-A-L and differentiate it from oral, but our oral tableau. It's a very tricky one. Um, But yeah, so I wrote an article on the hippity hop guy. It is uh, the lead of this week's Ben's Biz Beat newsletter, and it'll be up on uh, MILB.com on Friday as well. So if you like the eccentric characters, the super fans of minor league baseball, I think you'll enjoy that one. All right, Ben, and, and real quick, um, you know, we we talked about your trip to the cider donuts going there a few weeks ago. I don't think we ever wrapped that up. So just kind of take us th- quickly through what it was like witnessing a cider donuts day. Yeah, cider donuts. Um 
Sam, I heard you're a fan of the, the cider donuts. Uh, <laughs> I too have heard this. Sam. Yes. I've spread the news far and wide that Ben got me a hat uh, <laughs> from, from Hudson Valley. And I probably wore it through New York city yesterday. Um, I got some comments on social media from like friends. They're just like, what is this hat? So I kind of, it, it's funny how things enter the zeitgeist in other ways. My friends who are not as close to minor league baseball as of course we are, uh, it seemed to be a real hit. So I think, you know, based on that very limited sample size, I, I think they got something going up there in Hudson Valley, but what did you see, Ben? Yeah. You know, I hadn't been in Hudson Valley for uh, nine years uh, since 2014 somehow. So it was nice to be back up there. And uh, yeah, the response to uh, Sutter Donuts has been pretty huge. You know, that's a, a more autumn type specialty in the Hudson Valley region, but the Hudson Valley Renegades have Cider Donuts uh, at the ballpark, literal Cider Donuts every single game. They June 3rd marked their debut playing as the Cider Donuts, but they have um, Cider Donuts every game. Um, and the, the merchandise is selling really well. You can get it scented if you want. You know, we, we've had Tyson Jeffers, the general manager on the show before, you know, talking about that. Um, but it was it was cool to be at the ballpark that night and um, just really see how many people were wearing the gear who connected to it. Um, the team, if they can possibly get another donut machine, uh, I think they need one, at least for the cider donuts games, be because the line for donuts was just out of control all night long. There were post-game fireworks. And after the post-game fireworks, there were still people lined up for cider donuts. So they were a huge hit. And the cider donuts, interestingly enough, are made in-house well, in truck by uh, the team's churros guy, Eddie Garcia, who um, just happened to have a donut machine as well, always trying to expand his operation. Uh, you know, he does events all throughout the Hudson Valley. This is, I think, his, his first year uh, at the ballpark with the Renegades being there every game. So in addition to selling churros out of his truck, it's through his um, donut machine and the recipe he developed that the team is selling cider donuts. So it's not like a... Uh, you know, a, a company in the region that, you know, is already producing cider donuts. It's Eddie, the churros guy making those uh, cider donuts. So that I felt that was an interesting component. Um, yeah. Hopefully they can find a way, um, you know, to produce more donuts at the ballpark. I mean, the lines were uh, very long. Um, they ran out of a cider donut cheeseburger and Mac and cheese, you know, I think even before the first pitch started. So I think ways to uh, up the supply of those as well. And, you know, there were some of those kinks, I think to be worked out, especially with the, um, the amount of food and, you know, how long it takes uh, the fans to get it. You know, that's tricky at any ballpark and uh, heritage financial park where the renegades renegades play, you know, it's not a very old stadium and renovations are coming, but that's one of the one, you know, tougher about working in older stadiums, about 30 years old, you know, they don't have a dedicated, you know, huge kitchen space. So you're have a lot of carts and kiosks. And um, I think that's an aspect um, that fans can forget about. Not that not that you should justify, oh, it's okay to wait in line for a long time, but um, you know, operationally, it really can be on tough nights with a lot of demand on food. Um, you know, how you produce the food and get it to every area um, and keep that line moving is uh, is very difficult. You know, we should have some concessions managers on the show at some point and you know, kind of talk about the logistics of uh, preparing for that kind of thing. Um, but anyway, I wrote about Hudson Valley last uh, is on the site right now. It came out about the cider donuts specifically and uh, my night with the Hudson Valley Renegades and just what was it, it was like to see the cider donuts debut. And they will be playing as the cider donuts three more times uh, uh, this season. And so get out there, get a hat, 
And uh, you too, the pride and joy, aplomb. I like it. Um, and I'm very excited to make a trip somewhere in that general geographic vicinity to have a cider donut in the fall because I've never had one as I've been, uh, you know, re- continuously reminded by Sam, especially who is shaking his head furiously right now. Uh, and I don't blame him. I don't blame him. I would like to have one. You just you just haven't gone the extra mile, you know, like it's like I, an, I can't believe they're not available to you in Denver. It's I'm sure they probably are. Yeah, I probably just need to I need to do some more digging. We have had like, especially since the start of the pandemic, I feel like we've had just a crop of new amazing donut places pop up. But I'm getting married in three months. Like I got to I can't be stuffing my face with donuts. Not that you would know, because I look the exact same as the start of the year when I started working out and eating better, quote unquote, and none of that has helped. So maybe I will just get I'll go on a full cider donut diet until September. Tyler, I'm going to tell you what I tell myself every Friday. One donut's not going to kill you. <laughs> I like that philosophy yeah. in life. Um, all right, Ben, you have a a new trip uh, on the horizon. Not even on the horizon. It's like, uh, you know, it's like here. It's a very close horizon. Uh, what's coming up? Yeah, by the time this podcast is out into the world, I'll be on the road. Um, June 15th, Birmingham Barons. Regions Field. I have not been to Birmingham uh, since 2013, which is the year the Regions Field opened. So a decade later, get to go back, check that out. Um, got a couple, you know, side trips planned when I'm in Birmingham. Uh, very near the ballpark is the Negro, the Negro Southern League Museum, which is a um, museum dedicated specifically to the Negro Southern League, uh, um, of which you know Birmingham had had a team, the Black Barons. Um, so interested to check that out and write about that. Interested to stop by Rickwood Field. You know, America's oldest ballpark built in 1910, uh, hosted the Rickwood Classic for many years in which the Burm- uh, the Barons would return there and play at their old home. Uh, still in great shape, still big things to come with that ballpark. So um, looking forward to that as well. So it'll be a very busy period in Birmingham because uh, I'll just be there uh, Thursday, June 15th into Friday. And then Friday, I'll drive over to Montgomery, see the Biscuits. First time there in eight years. Riverwalk Stadium, really interesting ballpark. You know, incorporates an old train station. It was built on the site of a uh, like Civil War era prison. Uh, you know, there's still train tracks in the background that 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 um, you know, or not just the background, but real close to the ballpark that adds the atmosphere. So I remember being struck by that ballpark when I was there. Looking forward to going there again. Uh, then driving down to the Florida Panhandle, uh, Pensacola Blue Wahoos. Going to spend two nights in Pensacola. I haven't been there since 2012 when the ballpark first opened. Just it's now just called Blue Wahoo Stadium. And that Saturday night uh, that I will be there, the 17th, it is a Copa night. And uh, the Blue Wahoos are playing as Pock to Pock, P-O-K-T-A-P-O-K. And uh, that is a unique Copa identity because it's um, honoring an indigenous sport, a North American, and that is um, considered to be uh, the oldest ball sport, bat and ball or stick and ball. Uh, sport in all of North America. So the Blue Wahoos kind of went the extra mile, found a really interesting identity, uh, paying tribute to indigenous cultures and, um, you know, bringing awareness uh, to a game that um, isn't really played widely much at all anymore, but, um, you know, celebrating the the, the roots of sports uh, in our continent going that far back. So definitely we'll be writing about that. Uh, then I'll stick around in Pensacola for uh, June 18th, which I didn't realize when I booked this trip was Father's Day. I think, um, you know, I'm a dad now, but I still don't internalize Father's Day as being like 
oh, that's my day. I just think of my own dad and I'm like, oh yeah, I got to call him. But I forget that, um, you know, that, that I'm missing my own Father's Day, but it's okay. I'll have Father's Day uh, observed when I get, when I get home. Uh, and then Monday's an off day in minor league baseball, but I'll make my way to Biloxi and then spend Tuesday, June 20th with the Biloxi Shuckers. First time there since 2015, MGM Park. Uh, the last time I went there in 2015, um, you know, the ballpark had just opened. It didn't even open at the start of that season. You know, there were some construction delays. The team started the season on the road. So even though I saw a game there in 2015 and obviously the ballpark was operational, it was still had some things that need to be done to get it up to like full strength. So now eight years later, looking forward to seeing what that ballpark has uh, really become and uh, checking that out. So, you know, I, ch- I talked about this itinerary last week and uh, for everyone out there, I'm doing it again because I'm doing that right now. As you are listening to this, uh, I'm out there on the road and uh, it's not too late. Come see me if you're in this area. Um, say hello. Uh, maybe be my designated eater. I've gotten a very tepid response to uh, designated eaters on this. Uh, oh, come on, period. people. Yeah, I'm all in my own head. I'm like, no one's responding to anything right now. People have forgotten who I am. It's like, you're like Elvis, like at the end of his uh, life, you know, doesn't isolated and alone all right this is going way too dark i don't feel (laughs) way dark at the end Uh, of his life i do want to point out um multiple things one just as recently pock to pock is not played uh anywhere anymore in the way that it was in the pre-columbian times in uh in mesoamerican uh ancient history however uh, a, that's my favorite new identity in Copa this year. B, they are just discovering Pak to Pak things all across uh, the region uh, still to this day. And in April, they discovered a Mayan scoreboard at an archaeological site in the Yucatan Peninsula, which is pretty cool. Uh, 12.6 inches in diameter, and it weighs around 90 pounds. It's a stone um, <clears throat> inscription it's got two players on it and it's got hieroglyphics around it. That's pretty cool. Uh, so that's, that's one thing. The second thing is we have an investigative journalist on this podcast named Sam Dykstra, who dug up uh, a picture of you in the tooth from <laughs> like 20, what'd you say that was 2012, 2011. Uh, and you are um, evidently suited up as a quote racing molar in uh, in inland empire. So it was, it was a molar. So there you go. But I signed the autographs uh, tooth. I recall that. Um, yeah, here, here's the. It's a good picture. Yeah, I was asked for my autograph no less than six times despite, <laughs> despite doing nothing more than gripping a pen in my fist and scrawling tooth. Um, and apparently I won this race. Um, hey, look at that. Yeah. Yeah. This uh, this whole blog post, I should, you know, go back and promotes some of my old blog posts and some of those early nights on the road were out of control. I mean, this blog post details a night in Inland, Inland Empire where I showed up at the ballpark in the mid-afternoon and watched the players burn their equipment because they weren't playing well. And uh, it ends hours and hours later, you know, dressed as a tooth and signing autographs uh, in a mullet race. Um, you know, I'm not against nights like that anymore, but yeah, I look back on those more uh, anarchic uh, early days uh, running around everywhere i was a younger man also your uh tagging game was on point the way i found this post was because you tagged it tooth race <laughs> that is pretty good yeah and and but that is the my blog is still on wordpress even though we switched to medium so you yeah can find it on wordpress and medium but when it switched to medium this is way too inside baseball 
you, you could only have like th uh, four or five tags per post. So um, a lot of those more idiosyncratic uh, posts, such as Toothrace, are only on the WordPress version of the blog. But the full blog is, uh, and the final version is on Medium with uh, more mundane posts, uh, tags. There is uh, there's a lot of actual gold, not just in this post, but in all those posts. This is the this is a fantastic line though. Um, by this point, you may, Ben's old blog post included a lot of pictures, uh, and so there's a lot of ballpark photos, and it includes this paragraph. By this point, you may be saying to yourself, this place reminds me of Lancaster Stadium. Well, that's because they're virtually identical, designed by the same architect, built around the same time. But in Inland Empire, the builders at least remembered to include player clubhouses. This was overlooked in Lancaster, resulting in extraneous buildings in far right and far left field. <laughs> I did not know that about Lancaster. RIP to the, to the Jethawks, um, but that is pretty cool stuff. Um, all right, you guys, well, let's dive in. Ben, I want you to give us the, um, this was kind of a, a thought that, uh, germinated in your head and we, we kicked it all off and started discussing and debating, getting broadcasters together and, and everything. But, um, this is a, an episode that obviously I think we're all very excited for, especially because we get to hear from a lot of our friends, people that we've had on the show before, but, um, getting to hear from some of the top voices in minor league baseball. Yeah. Broadcasters. Who else is a top voice in, in minor league baseball about the broadcasters? And uh, yeah, I can't remember if I had this idea or Sam did, but we started uh, bantering it about um, just having broadcast minor league baseball broadcasters from uh, throughout the minors uh, share their favorite call. You know, tell us who they are and their favorite call and why it's their favorite call. So we thought it'd be uh, good to give the rest of the show or most of the rest of the show over to. Uh, highlighting some great calls uh, throughout minor league baseball. And um, also as a way for people to familiarize themselves with voices that they may not have heard. And uh, anyone who follows minor league baseball knows the deep, deep quality of uh, the broadcasters throughout the 120 teams. And so many voices that are essentially major league ready and just waiting for that opportunity. So it's, uh, it's really fun to just uh, get to know broadcasters and uh, root for them, uh, you know, to leave us behind as it were and uh and make make their way to the major leagues but uh it'll, it'll be fun to hear these calls and um i'm sure there'll be some good ones and i think you know like a lot of the episodes we do this is a topic i think we can return to because i'm sure there's more calls where this came from hey rob bradford here you guys know i'm always up for a good mvp story and one of the best stories is wasabi technology wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams including 20 major league baseball teams like the red Sox and nhl teams like the bruins and vancouver canucks even the liverpool football club is getting in on the wasabi action so why is wasabi the mvp well wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the amazon's the world are charging in fact wasabi is up to 80 percent less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from wasabi's ai enabled intelligent media storage wasabi air to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals data deletion and ransomware wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash 
the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Hello, loyal show before the show listeners. I'm Alex Friedman, and I'm the Director of Broadcasting and Communications for the Oklahoma City Dodgers. I've been with the team at OKC since 2012, and my first season calling games in the minors was back in 2007 with the High Desert Mavericks, a bygone team of yesteryear. I'd like to thank Sam and Tyler for asking me to participate in this episode, as there are so many talented and knowledgeable broadcasters in the game today. The call I've chosen to highlight occurred just last year in a game between the OKC Dodgers and El Paso Chihuahuas at Chickasaw Bricktown Ballpark. In the bottom of the ninth inning, James Outman hit a walk-off home run to not only win the game, but also complete the cycle. Outman went 5-for-5 five five of the game with two triples in addition to a single, double, and home run. It was an intense game in late August between the top two teams in the division, so the game had a lot riding on it. It was a back-and-forth affair. El Paso scored two runs in the top of the eighth inning to take the lead at 4-3. Jason Martin led off the bottom of the inning for OKC and appeared to hit a game-tying home run, but it was taken off the board due to a clock violation on the pitcher. Since it was a full count, it went from a home run to a walk instead. With the home crowd in a frenzy over what they just saw, Outman was up next and hit his second triple of the game to even the score. The Dodgers then had the bases loaded with none out, but they were unable to take the lead. It was still 4-4 in the bottom of the ninth inning with two runners on and one out with Outman coming up to the plate. At that point, I really wasn't giving too much thought that he was a home run shy of the cycle, mostly because there was an important game to be won. He was 4-4 four for four at that point, and I was just hoping for a hit of any kind to win the game. The ball he hit was absolutely smoked and was more of a line drive. It was out to right field, and the right field wall at the ballpark here is close to 30 feet high. I knew it was going to be a hit either way, but it ended up clearing the wall for the walk-off homer. It's not a perfect call, as I initially stumble at first, but I think I recovered quickly. The thought of the cycle was definitely in my head, because I am able to point it out somewhat soon. For perspective, there have only been six instances in MLB history where a player completed a cycle with a walk-off home run per baseball reference. It was the team's first cycle since 2011, and the first time in my career a player for the team I was broadcasting for had done it. All in all, it was an important game in terms of the division race, it was on a military appreciation night and a fireworks night, and there was a great crowd on hand. Over the next few days, I received a lot of unsolicited compliments about the call. It's not why we do this, but it is nice when it happens. Like I said, it's not perfect, but it was an incredible moment. And for a quick postscript, Outman actually hit for the cycle again just three games later. That time, it was completed with a single against a position player pitching, so the magnitude wasn't quite the same. 3-1 to Outman. Kinsler delivers home. Swing and it bags one! Deep right field! This ball is gone! It's a cycle for James Outman to win the game!
An absolute rocket for Outman to complete the cycle and give the Dodgers a 7-4 win. Hello, the Show Before the Show podcast. First-time caller, long-time listener here. My name is Emma Tiedemann, and I am the voice of the Portland Sea Dogs, the AA affiliate of the Boston Red Sox. Previously, I have worked with the St. Saint Paul Saints back in their indie ball days and the Lexington Legends, the previous single-A affiliate of the Kansas City Royals. When Sam asked me to send over my favorite call of my career so far, really only one came to mind. It took place on Friday, September 13th, 2019, when the Legends were hosting the Hickory Crawdads, the single-A affiliate of the Texas Rangers and the South Atlantic League Championship. Now, let me give you some context for this call. The Legends had won the South Atlantic League Championship the year before in Lakewood, New Jersey. And don't get me wrong, a championship is amazing wherever you win it, but I was really hoping to be able to celebrate with our fans and staff who had supported the team all year at home in Lexington at Whitaker Bank Ballpark. 30 minutes before first pitch, Hickory's starter was scratched. Even with that, we had a pitcher's duel. Zach Hockey for Lexington went six no-hit innings, but the Legends eventually scored in the sixth inning. It was an RBI single by current Kansas City Royal Nate Eaton to drive home Jason Guzman. Then in the seventh inning, Hickory answered with a Pedro Gonzalez solo homer off of Lexington's reliever Daniel James. So then the game remained tied at one until the 13th inning. And talk about a pitcher's duel. Brandon Markland for Lexington came in and fired four no-hit innings out of the bullpen. Now, at this point, I was doing all of the Legends social media at the time and writing the post-game recap as the game progressed. And I believe that we were the only game still underway because we were gaining a lot of traction on Twitter with people noticing how long this game was going. So in the bottom of the 13th inning, Eric Cole drew a leadoff walk. Reed Rollman then came to the plate with two outs. In his previous at-bat in the 11th inning, he popped up a bunt. But this at-bat was different. So on Friday the 13th, in the bottom of the 13th inning, Reed Rollman delivered a walk-off two-run home run to secure Lexington's second consecutive South Atlantic League championship with the final score of 1-3 to three if you wanted to make it a, a 13 thing. The official time of game, by the way, was 3 hours and 42 minutes. In those types of situations, you never know what's going to happen. I basically made that call on one breath of air. As Rollman rounds third base, I'm nearly completely out of air and I'm contracting my diaphragm to get every ounce of breath out so I can complete the call. Now I've listened to this call a lot and I definitely would change a few things. First off, that was not a pop-up. I have really focused on how I describe fly balls to the outfield ever since. Second, I have no idea why I chose to use the word dinger. I don't think I have ever used it since, but I cannot tell you why I chose that moment to deviate from literally any other word to describe home runs. Okay, now Sam has asked if anything has stuck out since. There are three pretty big things. One, that was the last play and call for the Legends as an affiliate in minor league baseball. They are now in the Atlantic League. That was my last call ever for the Lexington Legends. I was hired by Portland during the following offseason. And that was the last play I would broadcast for 598 days due to the canceled 2020 season, then the delayed start of the 2021 season. I remind myself, especially of that last point, and have never taken a broadcast for granted since. Anywho, that's a very long-winded way to introduce a 52-second clip, but here it is in all its glory. Thompson looking in, looks over to first as he now sets at the chest. 1-0. Popped up high and deep, right field, way back, gone! Lexington walks 
it off with the dinger by Reed Woolman and our crowned South Atlantic League champions for the second time. Woolman mauled at the plate. Hey everybody, this is Eric Bramer, broadcaster for the AA Pensacola Blue Wahoos. I'm in my second season in Pensacola and sixth in the minors after previous stops with the Biloxi Shuckers, Colorado Springs Sky Sox, Potomac Nationals, and Fredericksburg Nationals. I've also broadcast games for the Cape Cod Baseball League and Australian Baseball League. I've had my share of memorable moments behind the mic, a no-hitter, a long-awaited win after an 0-15 start to Fredericksburg's inaugural season, and last year, a walk-off win with four straight hit-by-pitches all come to mind. But my favorite call comes from last September, as the Blue Wahoos won the Southern League Championship by winning four must-win games in the playoffs. I got more excited earlier in the week on a game-ending catch in the division series and earlier in the championship game on a go-ahead grand slam from Kobe Fletcher Vance. But the slow build of what turned into a blowout 11-4 win in Game 3 of the Championship Series in Tennessee allowed me to really reflect on how I wanted to describe Pensacola's improbable championship. Reynolds takes the sign. The righty sets. 3-2 on the way. Maldonado swings and a comebacker. Gloved by Reynolds. He will flip to first. And the Pensacola Blue Wahoos have won the Southern League Championship. With their backs against the wall, they won twice in the Division Series and twice more on the road in the Championship Series. And on a cool September night in Tennessee, they celebrate on the field as the Southern League champions of 2022. 11-4 year final. The Blue Wahoos came into Tennessee. They beat the Smokies twice. And tonight it was the offense that led the way as they end the 2022 season spraying champagne. Hey, this is John Nolan from the Fort Wayne Tin Caps, the high A affiliate of the Padres in the Midwest League. First off, as a big fan of this podcast, really appreciate the chance to make a little appearance. And with so many amazingly talented broadcasters all around minor league baseball, it's an honor to be included here. And thanks to you for listening. I'm originally from New Jersey and grew up on Mets broadcasts. Listening to and watching Gary Cohen and Howie Rose certainly played a part in inspiring me to pursue this career path. So I went to Syracuse University, and while in college, I interned for the AAA team there. At the time, their broadcasters were Jason Benetti and Kevin Brown, who you probably know now call games on TV today for the White Sox and Orioles respectively, not to mention their work for Fox Sports and ESPN. So not a bad booth to learn in. Another former Syracuse broadcaster, Mike Cousins, who these days we can sometimes hear calling MLB games on ESPN Radio, was the voice of the Tin Caps before me. I worked as his assistant here in Northeast Indiana for a couple years before taking over the reins of lead broadcaster late in the 2014 season. At the time, the Tin Caps, then a single-A team, had a rookie at shortstop named Trey Turner. Well, as fun as it was to watch Trey hit 369 with a 976 OPS in 46 games late that summer, somehow, a few years later in 2017, he was topped. Despite being just 18 years old, 
Fernando Tatis Jr. set Fort Wayne's single-season franchise record for home runs, and he did that in less than a full year because eventually he was promoted up to AA San Antonio. Anyway, of the 21 homers Tatis hit as a tin cap, one stood apart as an inside-the-park home run. For me, Tatis is the most exciting player in baseball. And a speedy runner legging out an inside-the-parker? That's as exciting as any play in baseball. So I wouldn't necessarily say this was my best call ever, but Tatis is the best minor leaguer I've ever seen in person, and this call was as memorable as any I've had. To set the scene, this was July 2nd, an 85-degree day on the road in Dayton, Ohio, against the Reds affiliate, the Dragons. The previous batter, Buddy Reed, had just hit a homer himself. The pitch. Tatis swings, and he cranks one deep to center field. Taylor Trammell back at the wall. He reaches, and it's off of his glove and off of the fence, hitting off the 4-0-2 marker. Tatis speeds to third. He's being sent home by Contreras. The cutoff man throw, not in time. 4-3, Fort Wayne. That's an inside-the-park home run. Tatis chest pumps Reynaldo Elaraza. It's Reed who high-fives Tatis. And the tip caps have their first inside-the-park home run of 2017. They have the lead. And Luis Bolivar, the Dragons manager, is out to the mound to make a pitching change. Thunder and a lightning on this sunny Sunday afternoon. For some of the quote-unquote bigger calls I've had in my career, like when Tatis did later break Fort Wayne's home run record, or a division clincher, or a no-hitter final out, or even situations like a walk-off, I have taken a moment to think about what I want to say in advance. This, though, was a case of a day game after a night game, and the middle of the season, middle of a game, middle of an inning, and you have no idea what's about to happen and just have to react. And in the situation of being on the road with hardly any fans vocally supporting your team, you have to bring the energy too. Listening back to it, the fact that the center fielder who almost made a spectacular catch was Taylor Trammell, a top prospect himself back then, who shortly after this appeared on this pod and has since made the big leagues as well, that adds to the fun. I had the chance to catch up with Tatis a bit at spring training this year, and I asked him what his top memories were from his time in Fort Wayne, now more than five years ago. And in addition to his record-breaking homer, he cited this inside the Parker. So if it's still cool for him to think back on, it is for me too. Of course, part of the joy of minor league baseball is seeing the future stars of the show before they're in the show. And as broadcasters, they make our shows better. So thanks to Fernando and all the other incredibly talented athletes out there. And thanks again to you for listening. This is John Nolan saying so long from Fort Wayne. My name is Jesse Goldberg Strassler. Since 2009, I've been the broadcaster for the Lansing Lugnuts. Here's the story behind this call that I chose. This was 2011. And the Lansing Lugnuts were in the playoffs, first round, Eastern Division semifinals against the Dayton Dragons. And this Dayton Dragons team in 2011 was one of the great teams in the Midwest League's history. They were loaded, pitching-wise, their offense was outstanding, and it was all started by Billy Hamilton at the top of the order, stealing over 100 bases that year. But they were really electric, they were all-around balanced, and they were the favorite to win the Midwest League Championship in 2011. Well, 
They hosted the first game. They won it in Dayton. And now the Lansing Lugnuts had game two. And if necessary, game three. It's a best two out of three series. And in game two, Dayton's expecting to roll right through. Rain had come down earlier in the game. And in fact, there had been a rain delay during the game. Well, Dayton brought a two-to-one lead to the bottom of the ninth inning. And at the point, I believe that Lansing only had one hit. Marcus Connect did single, so now Lansing has the tying run on. But the man on the mound was Drew Hayes, who had been an unhittable closer for Dayton all throughout the year. And he just struck out Casey Hobson. So now two outs, bottom of the ninth, and the Dragons are one out away from advancing to the next round and taking on Fort Wayne. What I appreciate so much about this call, when I was first approached and asked to contribute my greatest call, quote-unquote, I went through a lot of calls just to say, uh, how well did I do in calling it, right? How was I on this double play ball? (laughs) How was I on this Tyler Soderstrom walk-off home run? Calls that I'm really proud of and calls that are recent, because if I'm doing my job as a broadcaster, I should be getting better and better to the point where every subsequent game, hopefully, best case scenario, is the best that I am as a broadcaster. Well, What I really appreciate about this call is that this is the greatest moment that I've seen as the broadcaster of Lansing. This was, without question, the most exciting moment that the franchise has had in terms of walking off the great team in the Midwest League, going on to defeat them in Game 3, and then sweeping out Fort Wayne and advancing to the Midwest League Championship Series, the last time that the franchise has been to the Championship Series. And then in listening back to the call myself, I really appreciate all of the habits that I had not yet learned, good habits and also bad habits. I appreciate how genuine I am. And you'll hear me get get shaken, that the the moment is so big, it shakes me. And yet I'm still there painting the picture, and you can feel exactly what I'm feeling. It's so big that I get the score wrong at first, and I have to go back and correct myself. But this is, to my mind, my greatest call in Lansing, because it is the greatest moment that I have seen in Lansing. And that is all that you need. For a broadcaster, you give the great moment, you do your best to deliver exactly what it means for the fans, and then you sit back and enjoy the moment. And by goodness, did I. Thank you very much for including me. And go nuts! It's Matt Nuzzo's time. Nuzzo takes his time before he steps into the batter's box, reaches down for some dirt. Now he climbs in. The Lugnut season is down to its very last out. They are down two to one. Bottom of the ninth, Marcus connects it second base. The first pitch to Nuzzo. Inside, ball one. Now Nuzzo today walked in the second inning, struck out swinging in the fifth. He lined out sharply to left field in the seventh inning. The Dragons can taste it. Ball one pitch from Hayes. Nuzzo fouls it back. Fastball got in on him. More baseballs are brought out to home plate umpire Martinez. What do you think the umpires are feeling right now? They understand the tension. Crowd gets behind Nuzzo. 
Hayes comes set. The right-hander delivers. Nuzzo takes a ball inside. Two and one. It has been mainly fastballs tonight from Hayes after mainly sliders last night. An open stance for Matt Nuzzo. No batting gloves. Waggling the bat back and forth. Now the pitch. Nuzzo swings and drives one to left field. Bo goes back toward the warning track. He goes. Can he make the catch? He jumps up. That ball is gone. A home run for Nuzzo. And the Lansing Lugnuts stun the Dayton Dragons. They win it 2-1 in the bottom of the ninth inning. A game-winning round tripper by Nuzzo to left field into the lawn area. They bounce in front of the first base side dugout, throwing each other back and forth. The Lugnuts still have life this year. Your final score at Cooley Law School Stadium. Game two belongs to Lansing. Three to two over the Dayton Dragons. Hi, my name is Tim Grubbs, voice of the Wichita Wind Surge, and have called all of the games over the first three years of the franchise's history. This is my 28th year in minor league baseball. I've broadcast around 3,800 games. Started my career in 1995 with the Hickory Crawdads. Spent a few years in Winston-Salem with the Warthogs. Three years in Knoxville with the Smokies. And then the bulk of my career, 17 of them in New Orleans. 14 with the New Orleans Zephyrs. The final three with the Baby Cakes. And then, of course, in 2019, the New Orleans franchise relocated to Wichita. Unfortunately, 2020 was our uh, red shirt year. We didn't play baseball. 2021 came, and everybody, including myself, was re-energized, super excited about opening the new ballpark and having uh, an exciting time at the ballpark. A few weeks into the season, the wind surge were in first place, had a good crowd at the ballpark, and the wind surge had a 7-0 lead against Springfield. All of a sudden, the Cardinals rally to come back, tie the ball game. Juan Yepes hits a home run to put Springfield ahead, pimps it, takes his good old time running around the bases. In the bottom of the ninth, Jose Miranda comes to the plate with a runner on, hits a home run to tie the ball game. And the very next pitch, Gilberto Celestino Hits a walk-off home run. First walk-off home run in Wichita wind surge history. For me, it, it was my first walk-off home run for my team in eight years. Brian Spogasevic hit a walk-off home run for the Zephyrs in 2014. With the ballpark in New Orleans, it was you know, below sea level, huge ballpark. There were a number of reasons why we didn't have many walk-off home runs, but I had called my chair of walk-off losses over the years. So this was a very exciting time, of course, for the franchise. Literally the next week, Arkansas comes rolling into town, and this is my favorite call of all time. Uh, I, I think so. You know, obviously it's only a few years old. I, I probably forget some of the ones from earlier, but uh, – we had some issues with the catering and the players, of course, when you get 30 guys down there in the clubhouse, they're always going to complain with the 
whatever food is served post-game. I get this text message from the guy that handles all the catering at Riverfront Stadium. Will this work for the guys tonight? We got a tie game. We're in the bottom of the ninth inning, and I look at the picture. It's a piece of flank steak. It's a baked potato. It's asparagus. It looks great. And before I'd even have a chance to even respond to Randy, you know, here comes the pitch to Miranda, and he launches a bomb, a home run, 420 feet over the left center field wall. Win surge, win it. It's our third walk-off home run in a span of like seven days. So the place is going nuts. I'm going, I'm super excited. Um, it was such a great time. It, uh, during the walk-off home run, I coined the phrase, ring the dinner bell. Keep in mind that text message I got a few moments before with the post-game meal. Players loved it. Fans loved it. It's uh, taken on a new life of itself. Um, the ball club coined the phrase walk-off city. Shortly after that, we made T-shirts. It's got Jose Miranda's silhouette on the front of his swing, which was so perfect. And then it has uh, one of my walk-off calls on the back. Certainly... Uh, Probably my favorite and certainly most memorable. And to this day, season ticket holders and fans still talk about it. Hope it's short enough for you. Hope you guys enjoyed it and uh, appreciate the opportunity. Um, you can play any of the two calls, but I think ring the dinner bell without a doubt is my favorite. Thanks, Ben. Talk to you guys soon. And the pitch to Celestino. Fly ball. Well hit. Right center field. Warning track. Wall. Ball game. Go crazy. Throw the helmet. Celestino, take your time. Turn the bracelet off. Step on third and trot home as the Wichita Wind Surge are going to celebrate on a walk-off here at Riverfront Stadium. 10-9 winners. Gilberto Celestino and Jose Miranda have gone back to back in the ninth inning. Not only is it a blown save for Escobar, it's a capital L in bold. The wind surge on a night in which you had a 7-0 lead, you lost it you were down to your final strike. And Miranda goes deep to left center. And now Celestino goes deep to right, just inside the Chick-fil-A foul pole. And that's how we end it here on a Saturday night. Well, this crowd of over 5,000 certainly has enjoyed what has been a riveting ninth inning as Gilberto Celestino and the celebration will continue into the night as the wind surge win it by the final on an unbelievable night, folks. 10-9. <laughs> we'll be back. Post-game wrap-up. Wind surge win. 10-9, your final. Hey, John Kosas here with the Columbia Fireflies. And before we get started too much, I just want to thank Ben and Sam for having me on and for letting broadcasters talk about their favorite calls. I think this is such a cool idea for a podcast. So many of these get 
put on Twitter or Instagram or just throughout social media and get so much interaction. Now you guys kind of get to hear the story behind some of the bigger calls uh, that have gone on. I've been here in Columbia since 2020, so right when the world ended is where I moved to Columbia, South Carolina in February 2020, and I've gotten a chance to call all of the Royals baseball for the Columbia Fireflies. Before that, I spent a year in Hagerstown back in 2019, in 2017 and 2018, I was with the West Virginia Power. So I've spent some time bouncing around the South Atlantic League and the Carolina League and uh, really happy to be here in Columbia, South Carolina with a great organization. Now, this call specifically is just, I think, such a great moment for the Columbia Fireflies because it really was the moment where we realized, hey, I think this pandemic thing's over. So it's our early Independence Day celebration. It was Probably the first year in maybe 20, 30 years that baseball didn't break up July 3rd and July 4th. They did that for the pandemic rules. They didn't know how strict you had to be or anything. So the Fireflies had their July 4th game on June 26th. Columbia was playing against the Myrtle Beach Pelicans wearing some special uh, Stars and Stripes uniforms. And it started off with Myrtle Beach coming out of the gates hot. Ed Howard hit a home run on the second pitch of the game. Ethan Hearn in the top of the first made it 2 to nothing. But Columbia came roaring back. It was one of those games where you just felt like something was going to happen. Uh, Gage Hughes reached on a fielding error in the seventh, and that allowed Diego Hernandez to score. Juan Carlos Negret mashed one of his team record 25 home runs to tie the game in the bottom of the eighth, which set the table for Daryl Collins. And before I talk more about the call, I want to talk about a moment that I had with one of my bosses, Ashley DiCarlo, before the season even began. She I want to know kind of what some exciting things to call were. And, you know, I talked about walk-off home runs. I talked about cycles and a bunch of things I'd never really had an opportunity to call a lot of, right? No cycles for me and only a couple of walk-off home runs to that point. But uh, she had mentioned that the Fireflies did not have a walk-off home run in team history during that. And I think everyone kind of jokes like, hey, yeah, it would be great to have a walk-off home run, but what about a grand slam, right? So Daryl Collins comes to the plate, nobody out, bottom of the 10th inning, and the bases are loaded. And there's a mound visit right before he comes to the plate, which gave me some great time to talk a little bit more about who he was as a prospect, a kid out of the Netherlands, and you can listen to it more. But he was one of the top prospects for the Royals back in 2021, so a special kid to come up to the plate at that time. And, I mean, he just cranked the ball. You knew off the bat. You hear the crack of the bat, and you knew that ball was leaving the park for Columbia's first-ever walk-off home run. So you got to see some history. You got to see the revitalization of the sport following the pandemic, and it couldn't have happened to a more special player, a guy who's still in the Royals' system. So that's why that's my favorite call. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I enjoyed calling it. So the lefty Cowan steps in. This is the situation every little kid dreams of. Extra inning. Bases loaded, a tie ball game. 19-year-old out of the Netherlands getting to live a dream professionally in his second professional season. Right throws home, and that's lifted to right field! It's a walk-off grand slam from Daryl Collins! That's the ball game! Columbia wins it, three Gatorade coolers on the field! They're waiting for the lefty to come around. The first walk-off home run in Columbia Fireflies history. He slams the helmet around third, and there it is. The Fireflies win it. (laughs) 
Holy cow! Daryl Collins with his third home run of the season. What's up, everyone? Tyler Zickel from the Vancouver Canadians joining you on the show before the show, sharing my favorite call. Last night, Wednesday, June 14th, here at Rogers Field at Nat Bailey Stadium, a guy that Ben got to know very well when he made his visit to Vancouver a couple of weeks ago. It's the pride of Clarksville, Tennessee, Garrett Spain. Coming to the dish, two outs, runner at first, bottom of the ninth, the Seas trailing the Hillsboro Hops 4-3. to three. Big game regardless, but made even bigger because Spokane, who was tied with the Canadians when we woke up yesterday for first place in the Northwest League, had lost. So the Seas had an opportunity to grab sole possession of first place, but an eighth-inning homer by the Hops had broken the 3-3 tie, and the Seas were down to their final out when the former Austin P. State governor came to the dish, and he went deep into the Vancouver night. My fellow broadcasters know sometimes you just have to let the moment carry you away. That happened for me last night, and here it is, my favorite call on the show before the show. And now, Garrett Spain. We know what he's capable of. 0-1. In the air, right field. Back goes Julio Carrion. He looks up and it's gone! The summer of Spain has continued. Tennessee, your boy just hit his seventh homer of the year. A walk-off, two out, two-run homer. 97 miles per hour off the bat. 385 feet. It's Garrett Spain's world, folks. We are just living in it. Hello, this is Tim Haggerty, the El Paso Chihuahuas broadcaster, the Padres Triple Eight team. First, I got to be on the show before the show to talk about my book. And now I get to come back to talk about my favorite call. Well, my favorite game in call took place on August 9th, 2019. El Paso scored 10 runs in the bottom of the ninth inning and won the game on a walk-off grand slam by Esteban Quiroz. 2019 was the year that El Paso set the modern era Pacific Coast League record for team home runs in a season. They hit 258 homers in 140 games. And this comeback-clinching Grand Slam was also the record-breaking home run. The real reason this is my favorite call is because of an email I got after the game. This game came six days after El Paso's worst day. There was a mass shooting in El Paso on August 3rd, 2019, and the whole city was devastated. This fan's email let me know that he listened to the developing comeback and its conclusion. I think we can all picture a live sports broadcast that immersed us. The fan's email told me that listening to the end of this game made him temporarily forget about August 3rd. I'll always remember that email. I'll always remember this grand slam. It proves that these games are important. These broadcasts are important. Shows like this one are important. So that's why this call is my favorite. In the bottom of the ninth inning, McCurry's pitch. Swung on, fly ball. Deep in right, it's up, it is gone! A record-breaking home run is a game-ending grand slam! 
the El Paso Chihuahuas score 10 runs in the bottom of the ninth inning and win 15-12. Most home runs in PCL modern era history. A pinch hit grand slam by Esteban Quiroz ending the most stunning ninth inning that Chihuahuas have ever had. All right, everybody, and now you're stuck with me. Um, hi, my name is Tyler Mullen. I'm one of your friendly neighborhood co-hosts of the Show Before the Show podcast. Uh, I really just wanted to uh, to thank Ben and Sam for uh, including me in the suggestions of people that we should have on this show, along with actual talented minor league baseball broadcasters. Uh, I oddly, it's very strange for me to think this. I have not been a minor league radio broadcaster for 11 years now. I started with three seasons in the Carolina League, one season in the Eastern League. Since then, my coverage of the minors has been primarily on the writing side and obviously through the podcast, but crazy for me to think that it's been that long. Um, so in uh, thinking of calls for this episode, I didn't want to go with something from the World Baseball Classic that I did in March. I've obviously beaten that into the ground. I wanted to go back to my minor league days. So I fired up the old external hard drive and I uh, came across some calls that I uh, do fondly remember and pulled one specifically from the 2011 season, trying to put yourself uh, back in the mindset of the, the 2011 campaign. We probably got People who are listening to this who are in their early 20s that are like, nah, I was in fifth grade, and that's so nice for you. Um, <laughs> 2011, I was in the Carolina League lead radio voice of the Myrtle Beach Pelicans. Uh, that season was our first season as a Texas Rangers affiliate. Had been an Atlanta affiliate for all of franchise history up until that point. And my first couple of seasons in Myrtle on field were rough. We had some really great prospect talent come through. Jason Hayward and Freddie Freeman and Julio Tehran and uh, a lot of guys who were uh, – Craig Kimbrell was on those teams. We had some studs. Didn't win a lot. First season with the Rangers, things really turned on the field, and it was a really lovable group of guys. We had a lot of top prospects on that team as well, um, but just likable guys, very likable guys from our manager, Jason Wood, all the way down through the roster. You've uh, seen a lot of big league contributors, guys who have gone up and made uh, impacts at the major league level. But what really stood out to me about that team was just the energy and the quality of human being uh, that was on that roster. We had a guy, uh, one of our outfielders, there was a time when we had three outfielders who were all named Jared which was weird. Uh, but Jared Bolden was uh, a lovable dude, uh, a guy who was so much fun to be around, was a great presence in the clubhouse, and uh, delivered in a big moment uh, for that Pelicans team in the second half. This is early to mid-August uh, of that 2011 season. The previous couple of years, the Pelicans have been just owned by the Salem Red Sox, uh, just dominated. And uh, in 2011, Rangers prospects came in, and that narrative really started to flip. Uh, Pelicans had already won the first half title by this point, but were kind of delivered Bring the uh, narrative, I think that things were going to be different heading toward postseason play in 2011 uh, than they had for the previous several years. And Jared Bolden was one of the guys uh, to put up a big moment in this call that I remember from a late summer night in 2011 in the Carolina League. And now here comes Jared Bolden with a game-winning run two stations away at second base. Bolden, a three-hit day today. First pitch to him from Batista. Swing and a drive. Deep out to right field. Back going Brents to the warning track. To the wall. It's gone! Jared Bolden a walk-off homer in the 13th. The Pelicans have walked off for the second straight night over Salem. 8-6. First walk-off jack of the year. Burns take the sweep.
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. We interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One once offered a real good time at the yard. To enjoy the others, you had to use your imagination. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Hutchinson Larks. B. The Norman Gags. C. The Wigwam Jokers. You're dead serious about your baseball if you picked A, the Hutchinson Larks, who were out for a few laughs in the Western Association of the mid-1930s. The Western Association dated in some version or another back to the 19th century, but our Larks were founding members of the Iteration Reborn in 1934 after the Western Association of 1920 to 1932 went south and out in 33. Regular Ghosts of the Miners listeners may recall the Hutchinson Wheat Shockers of that former circuit, but that was then and this is now. Or was now. Or was closer to now. Let's reorient ourselves. We left off in that Great Depression year of 1934 when the Western Association returns, ushering in along with it on a prayer and a wing, the Hutchinson Larks. Before the Larks' inaugural campaign took flight in May, the local newspaper assured fans that the area just back of the grandstand would be oiled down before the start of play, preventing the Hutchinson Seating Bowl from turning into another Dust Bowl. Over their first two seasons, the Larks tried for some fun under manager Boyce Bob Morrow, getting fine play from Sebastian Wagner and Carl Pentling, but posting a composite record of 134 and 129 and staying in the middle of the Western Association formation. Under the wing of new skipper Dick Goldberg, who apparently also kept a dental practice throughout his 11-year career in pro ball as a player and player manager, the Larks lightened up to a 79-65 and 65 year for third place in 1936. While Goldberg was replaced by Dick Klinger, who was subsequently replaced by Hugh McMullen during the 37 campaign, the Larks were not messing around on the field, earning a playoff appearance that year and reaching the Western Association Finals under McMullen in 38, getting top-flight performances that season from first baseman Zeke Clement and switch-hitting right-handed pitcher Frank Sokol. Wasn't Frank so cool? 
Since the 36th season, the Larks have been flying under the banner of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And when the 39 campaign opened, the team played as the Hutchinson Pirates. And that's how the Larks moniker got bucked. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these teams was into heavy metal in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Leadville Leadheads. B. The Silver Spring Silverhawks. C. The Goldsboro Goldbugs. Want to know the answer? Get digging. Or tune in to the next Ghost of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill is trying to get me to play the violin, and I've got to stop fiddling around. Well, huge thanks to uh, not only Josh Jackson, who makes his triumphant return to the show before the show this week. A big thanks to our pal, as always. But, of course, to all of the voices who joined us uh, this week for our look at some of the uh, broadcasters' best memories in minor league baseball. And with all of that uh, in the rearview mirror, we are actually recording this on Wednesday because I have a parade to go to uh, tomorrow on Thursday. So by the time you're hearing this on Friday, I will have already been, uh, you know, elated in my waste of a Thursday morning uh, in downtown Denver. So we're going to give you some recommendations for some matchups in minor league baseball, as well as the top promo of the week. uh, The things that we are most excited for this week. Let's kick it off with our good pal, Benjamin Hill. Ben promo wise, what is the most uh, electrifying thing in the minors this week that you're excited for? (laughs) Well, how about this? Um, Thursday, June 15th, Friday, June 16th saturday june 17th the binghamton ponies are playing as the southern shortcakes as in strawberry shortcakes and that's uh commemorating or a tribute to a uh annual strawberry festival that happens uh you know pretty near binghamton i think it's the oswego uh strawberry festival so they're honoring the region's uh strawberry heritage playing as the southern tier shortcakes and their mets affiliate so when you're playing, when you're honoring strawberries, you know, who do you think you might get to come to the ballpark uh, that weekend? You guessed it, Lenny Dykstra. No, Daryl <laughs> Strawberry. <laughs> For a second, I was like, wait, really? What a weird connection. <laughs> yeah. uh, Daryl Strawberry will be, uh, they're giving away a Daryl Strawberry bobblehead on Friday. And then on Saturday, Daryl Strawberry will be at the ballpark. And I'm sure there'll be enterprising fans who get that bobblehead on Friday, bring it back to the ballpark on Saturday and get it signed by Daryl Strawberry. But uh, there you go. A Mets affiliate having Daryl Strawberry at the stadium at the same time, they're honoring their region's strawberry culture and playing as the Southern tier shortcakes. I really thought when you were saying that, that it was going to be a tribute to, you remember the, the cartoon like greeting card character, strawberry shortcake. I do. I do. Yeah, I remember that's what I thought. I thought you were going to be like, ah, Binghamton artist created strawberry shortcake in the <laughs> late 1970s. Okay. So that's, I actually like that a lot better that it's just about the actual strawberry uh, growing world. Yeah. But we'll have to look into it now because that sounds like a very minor league thing to it totally to does on or something <laughs> like that. Strawberry shortcake. I've not thought of that uh, for quite some time, but I remember it being popular when I was a kid. For sure. <laughs> All right, Sam, what are you watching on MILB.TV? Yeah, well, uh, Ben is going to the South. Uh, so there are two teams that are playing that he will be at uh, on his trip. This is Biloxi against Montgomery. Um, for the rest of the week, it, those games will be in Montgomery. So, Ben, again, remind folks when you'll be there. I'll be there on Friday, June. On Friday. 
So tune in on Friday. You might see Ben pop up uh, somewhere on the MILB.TV broadcast. Maybe as a tooth, maybe not. Yeah. We don't know. Dressed as if a he remembers to pack his costume. <laughs> he um, just swiped that costume from Inland Empire 11 years ago. Yeah, and bring it every, every break it out. Yeah. Uh, well, I highlight Biloxi and Montgomery, not just for Ben, but also because there will be a pair of teens playing in that series, currently playing in that series, between uh, number two overall prospect Jackson Churio and number 56 overall prospect Junior Caminero, um, both only 19 years old. Jackson Churio actually just had a four-hit game on Tuesday, so he's heating up there in the Southern League after taking a little bit to kind of get used to that level. Makes sense. High A to double A is difficult. Saw it a little bit last year, but now he's getting to the point where he's a league average bat as the guy who was the youngest player in that league to start out the season. Um, Junior Camarero has a major big arrow pointed up next to his name. The guy can hit for power. He can hit for average. Uh, where they're going to place him on the infield for the Rays is an interesting thought, but he's a, another one of their developmental success stories and one other top 100 prospect to throw out is number 97 jefferson caro who uh he is one of the best defensive if not the best defensive prospects in the minor leagues at least from the catching position uh, but he's also hitting well so far for biloxi he's got a little bit of pop so if he's marrying that bat with the glove he could be a really special prospect for milwaukee as well so a lot to watch in that biloxi montgomery series tyler what are you watching so uh in another mention of young prospects uh across minor league baseball you think about the uh the cincinnati reds like ah they got ellie de la cruz up there they have finally cashed in on some infield talent that's not all the reds have and at high a dayton uh edwin arroyo who is the number 32 prospect in baseball uh came over to the red system from Seattle and last year's trade that sent Luis Castillo uh, to the M's at the trade deadline. Uh, Edwin Arroyo has been getting himself figured out uh, at that high level. He and Dayton will be taking on Fort Wayne, the Padres affiliate. And that system still has a lot of talent, including uh, the number 14 overall prospect in baseball and the Padres first round draft selection from 2021, Jackson Merrill. So you got a couple of guys who are getting themselves sorted at the high A level. And that's one of the, the most entertaining things about this stretch of a minor league baseball season is when, especially young guys, if they've scuffled at the beginning of a year, when they really start getting it all put together, May, June, July, um, those are exciting developmental tracks uh, to watch. So you can tune in to Dayton and Fort Wayne uh, this week at MILB.TV. And uh, that'll do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. Huge thanks to everybody who joined us, all the broadcasters uh, who shared their calls with us and uh, and some of their favorite memories. And, of course, to our good pal Josh Jackson, his triumphant return uh, to go to the minors after a two-week layoff. For Benjamin Hill and Sam Dykstra, my name is Tyler Maughan. We'll catch you all next week. Music.